Yeah. So that's such a good question. And I would recommend not writing your website for your mom, although she will look at it. <laughs> she'll always read, she'll read it anyway. <laughs> she'll read it anyways. Yeah. But the, I think the bigger thing at play there is not so much trust, but dilution of your overall message. If you're telling people you're great at 10 things, what are they going to remember? Right? Uh, you know, most studies show that our short term memory holds five to seven things at best. Um, and so if you're there just rattling off all these different things that you could do for someone in a call um, or on a proposal, it's going to be really hard to dedicate the space it takes to develop each of those ideas and to build up the credibility in each one. That's my guest, Liston Witherill, talking about the role that specificity plays in getting your message across to prospects and clients. Liston is a professional copywriter, and he helps technology companies get more leads and conversions. I wanted to speak to Liston because any positioning statement ultimately has to be articulated in ways that involve the written word. And I knew that Liston would have some valuable input on how to do that very effectively. I'm Philip Morgan, and this is the Consulting Pipeline podcast, where we talk about building your consulting pipeline through positioning, education-based content marketing, and marketing automation. So Liston, who are you and what do you do? So my name is Liston Witherell. I have a company called Good Funnel, and I'm a marketing strategist and copywriter. And Good Funnel really exists to answer one primary question, which is how do people make decisions? And by people, I really mean prospects and customers of my clients. So I provide consulting to people who are looking to resonate more with uh, people who visit their website or read their emails or go to their landing pages. Uh, so in a nutshell, that's what I do. And I really love to help businesses grow. Nice. So do you focus on any particular kind of business or, um, you know, in general, any small business or who would who you kind of set up to serve? Well, I'm guessing I wouldn't be on this podcast if I didn't. Um, so I focus on technology companies. So often software companies, um, companies that provide APIs or ways to connect to different apps, um, and also sometimes info and service businesses, but mostly technology. That's really my bread and butter. Um, and so there, there's uh, nothing like a great pricing page that could use a tweak or a great landing page. That's uh, something that gets me excited. So nice. yeah, that's really the area I focus on. Great. So, um, you know, kind of take me back to whenever it was you started working for yourself. How did you go down that road of self-employment? So it was a little bit of a strange one. I uh, would turn the clock back a few years here, and I was the director of marketing at an environmental consulting firm. And one of the mandates there was to bring in more business, right? Everybody wants the phone to ring more. Everybody wants more inbound leads. Yes. And so one of the ways to do that was first and foremost to improve the website. It, this was three, four years ago. Okay. 20, I guess it was 2012. Uh, and the website looked like it had been made in about 1992. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, with the website redesign, of course, comes this question, are we happy with the content and the copy on the page? Right. And so that was one of the places where I started to figure out that 
the words that we say have a huge impact on what people actually do. So along with the website came an inbound marketing initiative. Um, and, you know, seeing the traffic increase steadily just as a result of publishing articles with virtually no promotion, uh -huh. um, seeing uh, new business come in as a result of emails that were sent out uh, was just really, really an exciting thing for me because a couple things about me. I love data. Uh, I love to be able to test things and actually prove that something is true or not. Right. Um, and I love communication. And in particular, one of the things I love the most is being able to communicate really complex things in a simple way. Right. And so seeing all of that work uh, started to get me thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not really doing what I should be doing right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should just be focused on internet digital marketing. Um, and so I started studying it around the clock. Um, mm -hmm. That was sort of like my personal passion. Mm -hmm. And it has been for, I guess, the last four and a half or so years. Um, ended up taking uh, a class with Joanna Weeb of Copy Hackers, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, and was able to pick up some business partially through the referrals I got through there. And I think like any good freelancer, uh, my first client uh, I had to beg for. Um, <laughs> my second client was someone who I personally knew. Okay. Um, and it just started going from there. And, and now, of course, you know, over time you get more momentum and uh, eventually I was able to leave my day job with fully uh, replacing my income. Actually, I made more in my first month as a freelancer than I made uh, while I was at my day job. And uh, now I'm actually building a company. So those are all really, really rewarding things. And to see it happen in a pretty short time is uh, really gratifying. That's fantastic. There's nothing like getting that immediate feedback that you've not made a huge mistake, <laughs> right? Well, maybe the, the uh, jury's still out on that one, but uh, <laughs> no, right. I, you know, it, it's something that I think I was supposed to do. I don't believe in uh, fate necessarily, but I do believe that um, I'm better suited to own a company than to work for someone else. I'm not a very good employee. So uh, I think that um, it's been a, a really good thing, and uh, I'm grateful for it. Okay, so let me kind of set up what I'd like to uh, to do for the rest of our conversation for the listeners. You are the the best copywriter I personally know. Um, I mean, you know, there there may be better copywriters who exist, but I'm not acquainted with them. So I wanted to talk to you about positioning. That's one of the three big subjects of my, of this podcast is, is using positioning as a tool to make things better for your company. So not just using it for its own sake, but using it because, you know, there's a payoff to positioning your business. And what I want to do is get a copywriter's perspective on, you know, the whole concept of positioning and whether there is any potential benefit to going narrow with your positioning versus, I mean, when you position yourself super broadly, you're not really positioning yourself. But anyway, I suppose you could position yourself as I'll take any client with a with a pulse and a check and a, and a checkbook, right? But it's almost taken for granted, at least when I talk about positioning. If you are positioning your business, you're kind of saying that you're going to focus on a narrow 
audience, and you're going to provide a fairly narrow range of services for that audience. And there's more, you know, nuanced and abstract definitions of positioning, but that's really my definition of positioning is just identifying who you're going after, what you're doing for them. And you may include some kind of differentiator to set yourself apart from the competition. But in many cases, that's not even necessary because so few <laughs> um, freelancers and and small consultants bother to position their business effectively that you you essentially have no competition as soon as you position yourself. So um, let's start with just, uh, you know, the question, what is positioning to you? And we'll take it from there. So it's such a good question. And I, th I think it's a little bit um, semantic in nature, kind of like what is branding, right? right you ask right. 100 branding experts, and I, I think they may come to similar conclusions that we do. But to me, positioning really is about finding how can you uh, resonate and quickly occupy a specific place in a market in the mind of your buyer. Okay, so I know there, there was a lot there, so let me uh, dissect it a little bit. Um, when I say in the mind of the buyer, what I mean is as a copywriter, I'm very concerned with communication, right? right? How am I getting my point across? And is the person receiving that message taking away the thing that I want them to? That's like step one, right? right. If I can't do that effectively, I've got a big problem. Um, so in terms of occupying a space, there's several ways to do that, right? There's quality. Do I have the best product? Am I in the middle? Am I on the low end? Um, there's speed of delivery uh, is one thing, or maybe ease of working with you mm. is, is one way to look at it. Uh, there's price. How much do you cost versus your competition? Uh, and I would actually never recommend that you differentiate on price because someone else can always undercut you. Um, but then there's other things like we talked about already. Who do you work for? Do you work for a specific industry? Is there a specific problem within that specific industry that you solve? So for me, I'm I highly niched um, because I offer primarily copywriting. Sure, I do marketing strategy, but the core of my business is copywriting mm -hmm. to software companies. Right. Okay. So we've actually cut down, I'm not just a marketer. If you want the best copy, come to me. Um, and I'm not just dealing with technology carte blanche. I'm dealing with software and software as a service in particular, because there's some nuance there as well. Right. Um, and so those are the ways that I would say you can start to separate yourself from the competition in terms of positioning. I'd also like to introduce uh, this really common model that we copywriters use, and it's called the buyer's journey. And I'm sure you've heard of it, but basically it goes like someone becomes aware that they have a problem. Um, you know, it's not enough just to know that you have a problem. You also have to know that a solution exists mm -hmm. in order to start looking around for whether or not um, you want to solve it yourself. So once you know that a solution exists, you probably go out and research. Who else, you know, what are the solution options? Um, you know, how, how does one compare to the other? What are their costs? Who do they serve? Do they have some celebrity endorsement? Are there testimonials, case studies, use cases that this one is better for than that one? Um, and then, only then will they decide. 
And so positioning really is to get you to emerge as either someone that can be qualified or disqualified in that research and compare process. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if someone chooses you and they get to the, what I would call the fifth step of the buyer's journey, which most people don't include, but I think is the most important, which is refer and recommend. Mm. Whenever someone is in a position to recommend you, you get the absolute strongest recommendation because you've shown them that you're truly different than anyone else. So if someone is looking for someone, uh, a consultant to help position a firm and create content for them, and it's a web development agency, clearly they're going to call Philip Morgan, right? Right. So that's the kind of thing that um, I'm looking for. So let's go back into what you just said and pull out a few pieces that I think we, we want to unpack a little bit for yep. um, readers' interests or listeners' interests, sorry. <laughs> Uh, it all blends I a, together. Well, I have a writing background, so I'm so used to thinking about readers rather than listeners. Who creates that space in the mind that is, you know, what your positioning connects with, right? It, you, you mentioned something about a space in the mind of your prospect or your client or, you know, the the customer you're trying to reach. Who creates that space in their mind? Yeah, so this big, blobby, intangible thing called the market. Uh, is really what creates it. Mm -hmm. And the good news is we all can be proactive in helping to set that space and to set how we differentiate from others in the marketplace. So the the first thing I would say is you want to look at um, your competition. Where are they? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, where are they advertising? What types of content are they producing? Is it a podcast? Is it a blog? Is it video marketing? Why? All of these kinds of questions. And so you're going to want to reach people either depending on where you are in your business. When you're first starting out, you probably want to go to low competition areas where your audience is so that you're not going to get beat down by a huge competitor. But over time, maybe you want to compete on some of the more competitive channels to steal some more of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's what I mean is there are ways that we communicate with people. In my case, let me make it a little bit um, more hands-on. In my case, I do a lot of guest posting, so blogging on other companies' websites. Uh, I do a lot of features on podcasts. Thank you, Philip. Um, I do in-person events where I'm up in front of a crowd speaking. Mm -hmm. And in each of these venues, I'm demonstrating something about my positioning. It doesn't have to be everything that I've described here, but I'm demonstrating a little bit about who I am, what my business is, how it's different, and why someone would start to choose me. So I would also say that in the current time when people can go to Google and look up anything or whatever search engine you use, Mm -hmm. um, I think personality also is a big part of your positioning. And I think we're seeing that with a lot of big brands. MailChimp is one of my favorite, although I don't use the product anymore. They have a great brand personality and it's, it's in an identifier, right? It's, it's part of why they're different is they have this little chimp with a mailbag who's always in a hurry and trying to deliver mail furiously, right? Um, And so, you know, as a small business, I think we all have a really, really big opportunity to start to let that personality shine through and be honest with ourselves and the people who may be buying from us about what that experience would actually be to buy from us. 
Does that make sense? It does to me. Uh, if I can <clears throat> try to summarize what you're saying without losing too much of the fidelity, it, there's it's not just picking a position and um, and declaring success because there is the mind of the prospect and the market and what other people are doing. And so your positioning needs to both connect with that, you know, hopefully unoccupied space in someone's mind that you can, you know, be the primary, the go-to or the company they think of when they think of that, you know, that slot, empty slot in their mind. And this is super abstract and I apologize for this, but it seems like that's an aspect of it. And there's also a, um, a process of, you know, articulating that positioning through your marketing. So kind of showing it off every time you come in contact with your potential customers, showing it off through the writing you do, showing it off through perhaps talks that you give or, or any other form of marketing that you choose. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you asked me who am I and what do I do, one of the first things I said is I'm a copywriter and I'm very focused on how people make decisions. Right. Um, now, some other copywriters may say, well, that's what every copywriter does. But I actually disagree with that. I think some people would focus more on writing pretty words or giving the client whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I do right? <laughs> what I do is tell you how your buyers are making decisions and making sure that my copy is lined up with that. Ah. Um, and so that, you know, to me, that's a really, really clear way to show positioning. And so, you know, another point to make in there, and Seth Godin has made this point, um, you know, you can go out and choose a place in the market, a choose a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in this case, well, I'll go back to what I was saying about how people make decisions. There are other people who think about that in the world, right? Right. But a lot of them aren't saying it. Um, just like in, in who, you know, whoever's listening to this, very likely in their business, a lot of their competition are not talking about um, driving business results, for their mm -hmm. customers or clients. Right. So even though other people are focused on that, you can start to position and differentiate yourself by just actually saying those things and emphasizing them. So it doesn't need to be, I think we all feel a lot of pressure to be like, you know, a true snowflake. No one else in the world looks like this or says this. And, you know, my belief is with the amount of information that's, uh, now logged and sitting on server somewhere and that we can all retrieve, it's very unlikely you're going to have a completely original idea. Right. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but what you want to do is be someone of integrity who has something that's a little bit different or introduces some nuance to the conversation. And that'll go a long way to start to position you and your business. So let's, uh, Let's look at now these same questions from a from the perspective of copywriting. You know, using using the written word uh, to, I mean, I guess to influence people or to create some kind of defined result that we want as consultants. Mm -hmm. So from from that perspective, is writing to a broad audience better, more effective? than writing to a narrow audience. And let's just think about for the moment, um, just the audience axis of positioning, not even the other elements of that, like, you know, what you do, but just the who part of positioning. Yeah. So, um, 
The answer is definitely no. I taught a class a couple weeks ago, and uh, someone asked, can I write to four different audiences on one landing page? Right. And to me, the answer is clearly no. And the reason for that is um, when you think about what someone in your, let's say you have three different audiences. Okay. Um, if you think about what person A wants to know, it may be the same group of things, but person B probably wants to know them in a different order. So person A may care first and foremost about price and time of delivery, and then maybe third, they care about your quality. Um, but person B may care about quality first, and then price and time of delivery. Mm. So as a copywriter, when I think about actually sitting down and putting the words on the paper, that order that we're going to be conveying those messages really matters. And the reason is because people don't have a big attention span, particularly when they're online. Right. People are willing to read, but if you can't communicate very quickly that there's something um, really solid and important to them within that text, they're just going to bounce off your page really quickly. Um, and so you know, the way it really manifests for me in copy is giving people the right order of messages. And so if you're trying to sell to more than one audience, you're actually not selling to anyone probably because you're either trying to put all of your messages on an equal playing field mm -hmm. and your three audiences will not agree with that um, or you're alienating someone along the way. Now, what I would say is start to become comfortable with that idea. We don't want to alienate in the sense of they say, you know, you use profanity and I'm not okay with that. Um, what I mean by that is it's okay for me, for instance, to talk directly to software entrepreneurs on my website because at the end of the day, a lot of people from other industries still contact me. Um, I know it's working. And the reason it's working is because they identify with this primary avatar I'm writing for. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're trying to write for a bunch of people, it's going to just lack personality. It's going to be dumbed down. You're going to look for the lowest common denominator in everything you're saying. And that's really not a way to position yourself at all. I guess the axis uh, or the, you know, the, the spectrum here would be on one end, literally an audience of one person, um, you know, like, you try to go so narrow that you could only possibly be speaking to, you know, like your mom. There's only, you only have one mom, right? So if your website was written for your mom, other people can't be in that audience because they're not your mom. And on the other end of that spectrum is all the humans in the world. So how, you know, how narrow do you have to go to get that level of res the response you want from your, I guess, your ideal client? And then how broad can you go? Yeah, so that's such a good question, and I would recommend not writing your website for your mom, although she will look at it. <laughs> she'll always read, she'll read it anyway. <laughs> she'll read it anyways, yeah. Um, you know, I would really recommend writing for one person, and what I mean by that is I'm looking for characteristics that this person would embody okay. that represents the perfect person for me to do business with. Does, does so, it have to be like a real actual person that you know? Uh, so there's some controversy on this topic. Okay. Um, I would say absolutely not. It can be totally fictional. I would actually recommend making it fictional. And the reason for that is you probably know in your head 
who the perfect person would be to work with you. Mm -hmm. And you may not have met them yet. Right. Um, So the problem with saying I must know this person is it's going to be very retrospective. You're going to be going back in your company's past and saying, you know, this person was the closest thing to my perfect client or customer that I could imagine. Mm -hmm. But maybe they weren't exactly perfect. And because this is just kind of a thought experiment or an exercise that we're going to use to write all of our copy moving forward, I would say write out who that perfect person is. And I'm writing things like, what do they do when they get up in the morning, right? Uh, Is it a man or a woman? Are they kissing their husband or wife before they leave? Do they have kids? Do they have breakfast at home? Are they taking public transportation? I'm really trying to put myself in the shoes of this person and not only understand why they might buy a product or service like mine, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to fully understand what is their life like, right? Right. Because the more I can understand that person, the more it's going to make sense in my copy and guide me to produce the types of content that they need to see and understand before they're comfortable with me as a supplier. When you are selling to perhaps perhaps your clients are you know medium or larger size businesses, can you still think of them as a person? Can you think of that client as if they were a person or do you now need to think about them a little differently? Um, so you need to think, think of them as a person, but as you go up the scale and uh-huh. you're approaching enterprise sales, you're not going to be selling to one person. Right. You're going to be selling to many people. And so what you should probably do in that scenario is sell to the one, two or three customer types that are most likely to be that initial researcher or champion. Ah. Um, and then your backup collateral will start to sell to the other people. So for instance, in an enterprise sale, right? Um, let's say I'm selling marketing software. I definitely need to reach the marketing manager. Um, probably an intern will be doing the initial research. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk to them in a very high level way. Um, I need to talk to the marketing manager. Their director is going to be involved. Likely later on, the CMO and the CFO will be involved, and it kind of branches out from there, right? So the more money we're asking people to spend, um, I'd say there's a direct relationship with the amount of people involved in that sale. Right. Uh, And so, you know, what you would want to do is have different types of content and different ways of interacting with each of them um, rather than treating everybody as, you know, a medium-sized company or a large company. Right. You know, I think that leads into my next question. You know, it's, it's easy to think of positioning as this very static, singular thing. You know, I am positioning myself in a certain way and every potential client that I come across is going to see the same version. But you're really talking about selling at a more nuanced level where it's a process and you've got maybe a gatekeeper. And then once you get beyond that gatekeeper, you're dealing with different people and they've all got to be convinced of whatever it is they need to be convinced of to move to the next level, right? You've got to convince the intern that they're not going to lose their internship if they put you on a list. And then you've got to convince the manager that um, they're not going to lose their job. I'm framing this all in the negative, but it'd be just as easy to frame it in the positive, right? as you're convincing these different decision makers you're the right choice. So what, 
guidance do you give people about, again, from a copywriting perspective, about being more persuasive, especially as they're starting to deal with different multiple decision makers? You're definitely going to want to include a few mechanics of persuasion, and then you're also going to want to include a few appeals. So when I say mechanics of persuasion, what I mean is we want to demonstrate to people that there's an objective third party out there who can verify what we say. So first mm. thing, obviously, is social proof. Okay. What are the other companies that have used your product or service? What have they said? Are they in your target market? Because they should be <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're going to put them on your website. Um, and what was their experience? And uh, another way that you can go about that is to show volume. I've done X number of dollars of you know, service or people, I, I was on um, Ruben from BidSketch, his website, and he says uh -huh. like $287 million of proposals were written right. on BidSketch. And, you know, you kind of get the sense like, oh, a lot of other people probably are using this and it wasn't just one $287 million proposal. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> so, and, you know, Basecamp does the same thing. So that's, that's one thing I would do in terms of persuasion. Mm -hmm. um, another one is to develop some sort of authority. Um, and so you can do that by speaking, guest blogging, guest posting, guest podcasting. Thank you again, Philip. Um, and sort of demonstrating that um, you know what you're talking about and other people have verified that you ah. know what you're talking about. Right. Um, and there's many, many other ways that you can go about persuasion, but I want to talk about appeals for a second. Um, and I think those two appeals really are either intellectual or emotional. There's okay. also a spiritual appeal, but probably doesn't apply in B2B. Okay. Um, and so intellectual would be something like, you know, we, we see this, uh, Brennan Dunn, for example, says, I'll double your freelance rate. Okay. That's a very intellectual appeal. Do you, if you're not happy with your revenue, multiply it by two. Would you be more happy now? Right. I mean, who's going to say no to that, right? Right. Um, and, and so that that is one way is to appeal to intellect or, or logic or rational thought. Um, the other thing you can appeal to is emotion. And so instead of saying double your freelance rate, he could have just as easily said something like, don't ever worry about where the next job will come from as a uh, consultant. Oh, okay. Right. You see, like, so that's not... I mean, obviously, rationally, we don't want to be worried all the time, right. but worry is really an emotion, and it kind you can kind of think of yourself sitting at your desk, frantically scribbling out proposals that you know you're not going to win. Right. Um, and so those are the types of things that we would want to talk about. And so in a business-to-business -business transaction, I typically favor more intellectual appeals um, but I never do it without some sort of emotional appeal. Okay. Um, and you, usually I'll do something like, I'll quantify, okay, if you were to hire me, let's say we increase your leads by 20%. You would not only pay, your, pay for my consulting in, say, three months, um, but you would also make X amount of dollars more through the end of the year. And then I punctuate it with a question, what would that do for your business? Hmm. Uh, and so that, that's really an emotional appeal, right? That second, um, so the first part of the numbers is the intellectual, and the second part is the 
maybe starts them dreaming, oh, I could hire that employee or I could, you know, get that new piece of equipment or exactly. whatever. Right. Yep. Exactly. And so if we can get people to use their imagination a little bit and not mm -hmm. fill in every single detail for them, mm -hmm. but base it on facts, that's a big part of it. Please don't lie. I'm not if <laughs> I'm not a copywriter who's willing to just write anything and yeah. sad to say a lot of people in this profession are, uh -huh. but um, you can actually do a really good, effective job and never lie. And so I would really recommend that because if you ruin your reputation, then that's a wrap. Well, and like any, I mean, like I think the majority of the people who are listening to this podcast, trust is a huge factor in, in their ability to, um, to sell to close uh, proposals and turn them into money. And so I'm actually curious, you know, from, again, from the copywriting perspective, you know, we've talked about those more dreamy emotions, but what about trust? What, you know, what can you do from a copywriting perspective to increase it? And what mistakes could you make that might destroy trust before you've even had a chance to build it up? Yeah. So one of the most important things um, for trust generally is consistency um, so if you make a promise, don't break it. Right. Um, so for instance, if you tell someone, I'll have the proposal to you by Thursday, and then you send it a week late, well, your copy really does not matter at that point. <laughs> right. You're like, I don't care, dude. Um, right. Uh, from a copy perspective, um, I think one of the best ways to build trust is rather than asking for it and just, you know, throwing 50 testimonials uh -huh. in your proposal or on your website, though uh -huh. you should have testimonials. They're yes. huge. Um, but I think the best way to demonstrate trust is to really demonstrate that you, or, or to earn trust, I should say, is to demonstrate that you understand the person. So if we're talking about writing a proposal, the way your proposal opens should entirely be on the person, mm. right? So in my sales process, um, I'll get down to some nitty gritty here for you, Philip. Sure. In my sales process, I say that a good sales call should be about 80% listening. Mm. You're not there to talk about how awesome you are. You're there to understand what the person's pain is and how we might go about solving it. So once you determine that and you're writing a proposal, you should dedicate at least the first paragraph, often the first page of your proposal, to just give them back what you understood. Mm. Right. Right. You need a copywriter because uh, you're not getting enough leads on your website and you feel the main reason for that is your design is crappy and your copy is not capturing your value proposition mm -hmm. the way we're going to. Right. And, and so and that's affecting your business in the following ways. And so I'm kind of turning up some pain and reminding them of why they came to me in the first place. But also I'm showing them I listen you can trust me to be someone who has your back and understands exactly what your problems are. So that would be, uh, I think, a really tangible way for people to start to implement more of it in their copy. So let me, this is, um, I think, going to be a softball question. I apologize in advance. I love them. But uh, <laughs> is, is it believable when someone says, um, I, can, I can solve, I have expertise in 10 different areas? Uh, maybe those areas are somewhat adjacent to each other, but maybe they're really not. Like, you know, the the company that says we are great at design and development and 
We can also do some marketing for you and we can also do some SEO. Like, you know, I'm kind of describing the full service digital agency, right? Is that a trustworthy claim? Is it an untrustworthy claim? How does, you know, how does a prospect process a very broad claim of expertise like that? I wouldn't say that it's not trustworthy. I mean, if you look at, you know, um, Razorfish or Sapient, mm-hmm. those companies are enormous. Right. Uh, and that's exactly their business. Um, if you don't have, let's put it this way. If you're a team of five and you say you're an expert in 10 different things, that's going to be really hard to believe. Right. So part of it is, you know, what are the... Um, the factors that, that would sort of build trust or support your story. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that would be problematic, but the, I think the bigger thing at play there is not so much trust, but dilution of your overall message. Mm. If you're telling people you're great at 10 things, what are they going to remember? Right. Uh, you know, most studies show that our short-term memory holds five to seven things at best. Hmm. Um, and so if you're there just rattling off all these different things that you could do for someone in a call mm-hmm. um, or on a proposal, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to dedicate the space it takes to develop each of those ideas and to build up the credibility in each one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my concern would be either you're putting a 50 page proposal on my desk, which I will absolutely never read. Right. Um, or you're going to be diluting the message such that you're not conveying enough in any one area and it's it's discounting your overall credibility Mm. okay i um i'm afraid we're probably going to leave listeners wanting more here because i have about 20 more questions than i know people do too but let's wrap up with a just a few more does this you know does the the advice you're giving and the kind of considerations you're encouraging people to keep in mind apply also to email marketing just as much as it does to say website copy or even a brochure. Uh, it does. And, you know, we haven't gotten to the kind of what are the biggest mistake kind of questions, but, um, right. you know, with email marketing, I think the biggest mistake is that, um, people write emails that are way too long. Um, so I wouldn't say take everything I'm saying, and apply it to email marketing, I, mm-hmm. I would say that well, here's the big takeaway for me is that in terms of um, positioning yourself, it's not done in one place, right? It's uh, the uh-huh. aggregate of all of these different ways we're communicating and interacting with people. Um, there should be a core message there that we can always go back to and say, remember, I'm the best at this or this is why I'm different. Mm-hmm. Um, but in email marketing, Uh, I think generally people try to write a really long email and are sort of apologetic about the fact that they're emailing you in the first place, go out of their way to um, do all of this development around their email. Uh What they should really be doing is, you know, who sort of like, why are you emailing me? Why should I care? Who are you and what do you want me to do? And if Uh you can communicate that in four sentences, awesome. Um, so that's, that's what I would recommend for email marketing is try not to, um, uh, try not to go overboard. (laughs) Yeah. I I guess one thing that's distinct from, uh, about email marketing is that you generally have the advantage of time, right? You can, you can communicate over time. Whereas on a website, 
you're not guaranteed anything more than one visit, right? If right. you even get that. So, I mean, does that sort of color your approach to copywriting where on a website it's, it needs to be maybe, maybe the language needs to be cranked up so that you make a stronger impression and really grab people versus email? Or is there some other difference like that? Yeah. So with a website, um, and it depends on the part of the website and how people are getting there and all these different types of things. But um, with a website, mostly we want it to do the primary job of confirming why someone is there and letting them know whether or not the thing is for them. Mm -hmm. With email, if you've got their email address, let's assume this is not cold outreach. Let's yes. assume someone opted into your list. Um, when you email them, what you're able to do now is add dimension to that. You can sort of paint a mural over time and mm -hmm. say, you know, here's the stuff I communicated on my website, and now I'm going to introduce a bunch of nuance or support for those claims that I'm making. Um, and so you can really build a much larger story through email that you than you could on your website. Mm. Nice. But don't do it in one email. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, the, the one yearly email that you send to your list. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Here's really the last question I think I have time for, even though, like I said, I've got dozens of others that are percolating up, percolating up. What's the, you know, the last bit of advice or the most important advice you'd want to give, let's say a development shop who is wondering how their, you know, their copywriting can, can be better. Uh, better position, more effective, you know, just better. Just better, but only one piece of advice. I'll try my best. Uh, I, I would say uh, don't be afraid to have a personality. Um, that's the biggest mistake I see, particularly in professional services. Yes. Um, especially B2B businesses generally maybe, is that we're, we have this misconception that because we're selling to a business, it has to be, you know, very serious, a starch pressed shirt and a tie and mm -hmm. everything is very proper. And the truth is on the weekend, you're going out and drinking with your clients, right? Or you're like doing, they're doing something fun. Right. Um, so we all have a personality. We all have a personal life. We all understand and, and crave social interaction. And so I think you, you should start to let go of this idea that you need to be especially formal. And even if you don't differentiate yourself on some of the other things we talked about, uh, whether that's quality or the types of services you're the best at or specific industries that you serve, just having more of a personality that's relatable and feels like a person is talking to you, I think will make a gigantic difference in your business. And so I would say start there. Liston, this has been the highlight of my week. Seriously, this has been really great talking to you. Um, and so I know people are going to have questions. How can they find you? How can they ask you follow-up questions um, that we haven't had time to go into here? Uh, what's the next step for listeners who want to want to connect with you? Perfect. Thanks for asking. So um, I check and respond to all of my own emails. You can email me anytime. That email address is liston, L-I-S-T-O-N, at goodfunnel.co. Uh, you can sign up for my email uh, autoresponder, and that's goodfunnel.co, co, not com. Um, or you can hit me up on Twitter, at law4, L-A-W number four. Thanks so much, Liston. Uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Philip.
That's it for this episode of the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Thanks again to my guest, Liston Witherell. Again, you can find Liston online at goodfunnel.co and on Twitter at LAW4, LAW number four. You can find more episodes of this podcast at consultingpipelinepodcast.com. I'm Philip Morgan, and I hope to see you again next time.